Hi, I'm Tyra G., your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal listeners, fearsome and generous, humble and honest, in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. You know, here we dig deep and we come up strong. We bravely walk into places where tradition tells us there's some things you just don't talk about, but not at this table. And no matter how hard judgment knocks, it can come in. Beloved, here we live beyond the wreckage. Every week, we experience, educate, encourage, empower each other. We have a firm belief that everyone has a story, but also is a story. So here we share aha moments and stories that have been left in our pockets for too long. Although many of your voices will speak light into darkness, there is no insignificant person around this table. Each week we start right where we are. The dress code is your authenticity, your inner awesome, and your belief that impossible is merely a word to describe the degree of difficulty. Frankly speaking, with Tyra G is one of my most favorite dreams. I thank God for every remembrance of you, your gifts, your ideas, your present, your encouragement. I'm inspired. I can't do this without you. Thank you so much. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, Cablecast on Cox and Verizon Files Channel 37 and Channel 27 in Reston. And we are webcast worldwide on the internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Should you miss us, no worries. You can catch our archive, frankly speaking, shows on a podcast, wherever you listen to your favorites. It's easy. And if you want to hook up with me offline, it's Tyra at TyraGarlington.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our Frankly Speaking theme song. And for naming it, I'm listening. For six years, Frankly Speaking with Tyra G has been telling thematic stories to touch the mind, the heart, and the spirit. They've been multicultural, intergenerational, educational, and inspirational. And they've been told by you, my co-host, my listeners. Thank you so much. However, we, excuse me, got caught. We're in the midst of an ongoing season of uncertainty, unrest, unnatural disasters, and unnecessary violence and death. We've all been touched by a fresh sense of fragility in ourselves and in our social systems. As a result, this has become a testing time, a time to look hard to recognize that we are doing better than we think we are. This is a time to elevate voices of hope, This is a time to reimagine what's essential. This is a time for believers to remember the author of Genesis is also the author of Revelation. He is still in the miracle business. This is a time to be encouraged. However, on occasion, in order to survive, 
we're challenged to encourage ourselves. We need to recognize that we're a journey, not a destination, a process, not an event. Even when we are still, we are in motion, loving, serving, nurturing, encouraging, and empowering. We are love, and love does. And sometimes, sometimes we get stuck in our no longer, the familiar, the habits, the routines, and are not yet who we were created to be. And we may ask the question, am I enough? By the way, the right answer is a resounding yes. Right now, right here, we have everything inside of us we need to be whoever we're created to be. There is nothing we are missing. We're amazing, just as we are. So we're celebrating who we are now, and we're celebrating the things the mirror can't show us. Consider that life is a process, not an event. Every time it rains, it stops raining. Every time we get hurt, we heal. After darkness, there's always light. We are reminded of this every morning, but still, we can forget and instead choose to believe that the night will last forever. It won't. Nothing lasts forever. The following words will create our common thought space this week. They are offered by, offered by noted karmic astrologer Dora Jones, and I quote, Each of us has come into life with a promise, a gift, a passion, and a deep, heartfelt desire. The promise is what you've come to life to master. You've made a promise to yourself to overcome, resolve, or heal some aspect of your consciousness. As you face your life's experiences, you're given the opportunity to forget, fulfill this promise. Your responses to your experiences determine whether you fulfill or break the promise you've made for yourself. Now the gift, the gift is what you have come to life to give. It is the cornerstone of self-determination and self-actualization. The gift constitutes your talents and your abilities. The special things you do, it's only you can do them. The gift is enhanced or diminished by how you do what you do and how you share with others these things that you do naturally or well. Passion. Passion represents those things that you pursue for the sheer joy of it. Those things that you do that make you feel alive and meaningful, valuable and worthy. Most of us are frightened away or taught from talking about or feeling or walking in our passion. We're made to feel it's inappropriate or useless. The heartfelt desire is the thing you must want to experience in life. Some want love. Others want acceptance. Most of us want both. The difficult we face, difficulty we face is not losing our identity or integrity in pursuit of a heartfelt desire. Until today, you may have been aware of the true meaning and purpose of your life. But just for today, ask the Holy Spirit, your guardian, your angel, your guides to reveal to you how each of you and each of these elements is represented in your life. 
Let's put this together as an affirmation. Today, I'm devoted to pursuing a deeper meaning and a more divine expression in my life. I will separate what happens to me from whom I was created to be. Now, my guest at the table this week is evidence how all three of these elements work together. Christopher Derrick, I'll call him Chris Derrick, lives with a gift that helps open doors to our imagination. His gift helps excite, entertain, education, and empower. His journey is evidence that he said yes to the power within him again and again. But wait, no one can tell the story he's living better than Chris himself. And for that, let me turn over the mic to you, Chris, now. Hello. Hello. How are you today? I'm wonderful. That's good. That's good. Um, you know, where to begin? Um, so I'm writing for a, um, a television show right now. I'm writing for The Equalizer starring Queen Latifah. And it was a long journey to get here. But I realized that I wanted to do storytelling as a career when I was a junior in high school and the CIA attempted to recruit me. Mm -hmm. They said to me, we will pay for your college. Doesn't matter where you want to go. Doesn't matter what you major in. We'll pay. Um, as long as you give us five years when you are out. And I was tempted. I really was tempted. But I also had to say no because I know what the CIA is up to. And I said no. But I had to ask myself, why were they coming to talk to me? And what did I present that thought that they could, you know, present this offer to me? And I... You know, I mean, it's sort of a, I mean, the retrospect is sort of an easy answer. At the time, I didn't t- quite put it together. But, you know, I had spent uh, a summer in France when I was in junior high, and then I had spent a summer in Germany where I, uh, where I lived in a small village when I was in high school uh, between 10th and 11th grade. But also my father at the time was running a coffee importing business. And I just kind of looked at it as like, I bet they were like, he has a background that if you check it, makes him look like he's done some interesting traveling and his father's company is an interesting kind of front or potentially could be a front in the eyes of the CIA. So that's, you know, but it just made me say, I have stories to tell because I've been places. I've seen the world in in uh in various places that not too many um not too many black boys from a suburb in Cleveland probably experienced and that allowed me to think about you know what uh you know what made people good in the world and do people struggle to to find that good in themselves and that's what I tend to write about and that's and I but because I traveled I saw the world as more than just the United States, more than just Cleveland, Ohio. I saw it as this epic 
situation. So I kind of gravitated to t- telling these epic stories. Um, but that's not the easiest thing to sell um, in Hollywood for when I came out here. It, it's, 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 it's even harder now, but we can get into that. But it's just um, there was that disconnect. I don't know how many meetings I went into where I would send a script, they would react positively to the material, and then I would go in with my brother. At the time I was out here with my brother, and they would and their response on their and you could read it on their face on their body language was, I can't believe this was written by two black guys. Ah, and, yeah. uh, and that came up over and over again because the stories that we wrote were not the stories that fit the narrative of what white people saw for black people. And because uh, because of the way I, I grew up, that type of high-velocity life, to a degree, felt very normal to me. Mm-hmm. And it sure that it was, you know, I would tell people and they wouldn't believe me a lot when I was, like, in high school and things like that in the college but it wasn't like I was telling a fantasy story. I was telling a story about things that were like, this is based on things that, that I have done. Sure, it's been extrapolated to fit the dramatic of telling a film story, but it wasn't like this whole cloth invention. And and there was a lot of trouble with, with trying to get executives and studio heads and, and producers to believe that the story was real and then also that it was written by two black people. And that just became a hurdle that was very, very hard for us to get over. I want to ask um, you something. I want you to put a comma there. You just jam-pack ideas, okay? Um, <laughs> yeah. First thing I want to underscore, when you traveled, you were living the stories of your travel. You translated those and in, in embellished the experience to inc- to become the kind of story that you could tell others. What I want to yeah. get to, uh, Chris, is this. Do you think, do you think much has changed? This is what, 20, 25 years ago? Uh, yes. Okay. Do, mm-hmm. do you think much has changed for black boys and girls walking into a producer's show store uh, office presenting something and them responding from a stereotypical uh, belief. Do you think that still exists or do you think it's gone away? I think it still exists. It, um, it might be reduced, okay. but it's still... I agree. Um, and I say that because I've had people tell me uh, recently about projects that they wanted to do that were about black stories that were not part of the world that whites know of blacks either from their limited experience in real life or their experience on television and what will happen is they'll say to you well that's not the black story that i know that's not the black life that i know and because you're not in the position to ram a story through yes yes you know, you're asking them, can, can you give me the millions of dollars to tell me this story? Maybe it's only hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, but 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 if the budget's really low, you, you, you kind of are stuck in telling a certain type of story. But that is what happens. They won't feel so open 
to you telling certain kind of stories. I'm, I mean, I'm just for example, I mean, you know, the story about my father is, uh, you know, with this, with, when he was trading coffee, um, or not just the trading, but when he was, you know, he had a business where he had partners in Ecuador and he was bringing in coffee mm-hmm. and he had a client, Sarah Lee. I had, this is a while ago, my brother and I had wrote a, a TV pilot about that. And people were kind of like, this didn't really happen. I did it. Or because my brother and I are, are you know, my family's very light-skinned, they would assume that my father was white. Mm-hmm. They would ask people, why did you make the lead character black? And it was like, because in real life, it just happened. He was black in real life. Mm-hmm. And so... This, there's, there, and there's sort of like a disconnect, like, and the disconnect is maybe not, I don't believe you, but the disconnect is, I might believe you, but, but we're the audience, yeah. Well, not, not even that. I can't sell it up the chain to get my because my boss may not believe you. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, there's, and there's also the audience too, sure, but but I feel like there's a little more acceptance of black uh, of black men and women in spaces that aren't necessarily black. For instance, you know, there's been a lot of talk since Idris Elba became yes. sort of a star to make him to, 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 to fill the shoes of James Bond, mm-hmm. which is all, all well and good. That's, that's, you know, that's perfectly acceptable, um, like possibility. The only thing about that is, is and this is where it affects me, is there's no talk of getting a black writer to write the black James Bond. Ah. Now, see, I didn't so, think of that. I, I'm aware of the conversation. I'm aware, and I'm, I'm so thinking, what a big hurdle, right? But right, what you right. just said, because you live behind the scenes. Yeah. And you are yep. a black writer. Okay. Okay. I mean, I, I mean, I mean for instance, you know, there was a lot of talk when a few years ago when um, uh, there was a woman who was just in a movie called The Woman King, Viola Davis. Yes, she couldn't sell that. She and her husband. Nobody, right. yeah. But, they, but when they sold it and they got that movie set up, mm-hmm. it, was written, it was written by a white writer. I did not know that. And that is kind of a crime to a degree. Uh, I'm not saying that someone white can't tell that story. Like someone white obviously found the story, did the research, and told it in, in a way that was compelling enough to trigger an actor, trigger a director, and trigger you know you know fifty, sixty million dollars from a production institute to you know to do that. So 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 they did a good job. But the converse doesn't happen. You don't find black writers being uh, uh, being made available to write white stories that way. You, you know, know what? Instance, I, I'm I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, okay, uh, because I'm thinking of your career, which we're going to get into yep. next. Okay, I'm yep. thinking, all right. So remember when I started with the promise, the gift? Yes. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. I'm hearing everything you're saying, and yet your experience, though difficult and elongated, you are you are moving in spite of. 
and yeah. and I want I want our our listeners to know this because you have laid the reality out as the foundation. Yeah. So let's talk about if you have the gift and you have the promise and you believe in yourself, what you can do in spite of the landscape, the political social landscape. Well, you have to find. Um, you have to, the first thing you have to do is you have to find your way in. You have to find a way that allows you to be considered a professional to be, and therefore to be considered for for any opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you want to step out, if you want to tell broader stories Mm -hmm. and you kind of have to look to find a way in that 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 doesn't rely upon your your ethnic background okay. or your race. Okay. Now that becomes difficult. I mean for me, how I got into writing television is I knew someone who I'd met maybe fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh uh twenty years ago. And he became a huge television writer and i stayed in contact with him over the years he uh, he he most recently did a show called mrs davis but in 2019 he did a television show called it was called a watchman and i hadn't talked to him in a couple years this is a white guy and but the story centered around a black woman is a superhero story Uh and i reached out to him in the middle of that season i only did one season and told him how much I thoroughly enjoyed what he was doing as a story, uh, just all of it. I mean, his staff, uh, he had a lot of black people on his staff. But, and he said to me, he said, you know, oh, I haven't talked to you in years. Why don't you come to my office? Let's catch up. Mm-hmm. And I went to his office about t- two months later, and then we sat down and talked. For, he gave me a big hug. We sat, we talked for like 90 minutes. And I told him what I, I told him something I was working on and all this stuff. And he said something which was a little, um, it's it's he said something that is it sounds like it's very it's simple advice, but it's it's hard advice. You know, I told him what I had some movies I wanted to do, and he said, "Look, I know you want to do movies. I've known you for your whole life that you wanted to do movies. My suggestion to you is if you get on a television show and you get credits, you'll be in the system, and people will trust you to deliver sight on scene because you have credits." So get on a television show. Now that sounds very like, yeah, okay, sure, that's, that, that's simple advice, but it's difficult advice. It's a hurdle that people fight all the time. It's a hurdle that I had fought at that point for like six or seven years. Okay. But he said, but he said to me, if you need my help, here's my number. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. You are saying here is which is which is a, a situation of like I'm gonna vouch for you, which is a very hard thing to get people to vouch for you in Hollywood because it's all very much of like a like it's so subjective, you know. Yes. I might love a script, I might love a movie, mm-hmm. you might hate it. So therefore, if I vouch for you and expend that capital that you would spend five, ten, fifteen, twenty years building up, mm-hmm. and it doesn't. And it doesn't go through, then the capital gets eroded and wasted. Yes. But he, you know, but he believed in me. And then about four months, you know, 
this is right before the pandemic. It was January of 2020. And then the pandemic happened, and I stayed in touch with him like like more consistently at that point because it was more like maybe every six months or nine months, or maybe like year and a half. That I would or two years, I reach out to him. But I was I just but I made a point is I'm gonna email him like pretty much like every like month or month and have it the most. Okay. And then and then what happened just because I had because now he knew that I had this plan and I thanked him and sort of tell him things and get his advice. And then what happened was. I had a meeting with a writer who wrote a movie that this guy produced, the the Star Trek movies that came out, the new, the newer, the, the the reboots of those in like the early like 2008 or something like 2009. And I had the meeting with that guy who was who was now in charge of the Star Trek universe. And I said to myself, wait a minute, my friend who said call me if you need any help, if you need if you need me to vouch for you, essentially. He knows this guy. So I can ask him to vouch for me. So I took the meeting. I found a way to smartly like mention, I know your friend, and then kept talking and, and, and had a really, really good meeting. And, the, and, and in that meeting, that guy had asked me to send him a script. Mm-hmm. I, I said, and he said, send it to me like, like immediately. As soon as, you got to, as, as soon as you got to Zoom, send it to me. So I, I got off and I got off the Zoom. I called my managers. I said, "Can you send this script to so and so?" Says Alex. Here's his email. Blah 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 blah. And then I called my other friend, and I said, "Hey, can you just talk with Alex? I just had a meeting with him. Blah blah blah." And and he was like, "Oh, I'm on the phone with him right now." <laughs> you know, and I you know, and I said, "Oh, would you tell him I was tell him I'm not crazy?" And he was like, "No, no, no. You're fine. You're good. You're good." I put in a good word, like you're good. And then two weeks later, Alex invites me to meet his whole company. Two yeah. weeks later, I, two weeks later, I have an interview to write on Star Trek Picard. Two weeks later, I get a call at 11 o'clock at night on a Thursday asking who represents me. <laughs> on that, you know, that Friday morning, I get a call from my managers at eight. Eight o'clock is an offer from CBS. They want you to start on Star Trek on Monday <laughs> in three days. So, and so it was that. It was, so it was that fast. It was and the and and the script I wrote and all the kinds of stuff had nothing to do with me being black. Now the fact that I am black helped him. Helped him. His partner was the was the granddaughter of Lena Horne. So, so he's he's more amenable to like I know their stories that yeah. we don't get to hear from black people because my partner will tell me things that I you know don't know that people don't know. Yeah. But so again, it was like you got to find the right people, and that meeting, that early meeting in January before, and then ten months later, you know, just by me like just properly cultivating that relationship and doing the right things and not asking for too much and timing, specifically timing when to ask the favor from the first guy. Okay. Okay. So I I want to, I want you to go over again because this, what you just said is not limited to your craft, to your, to your industry. And I, I want us to make sure find your way in that does not rely on your race your ethnicity be professional 
right? Cultivate, cultivate the relationship. Continually do a high-touch thing. Timing, timing is very important. And Mm -hmm, in your situation, I love it, what the guy said. I know you want to do movies. Get on TV. Get the credits. So he gave you a roadmap. In other words, you had a mentor. Yeah. Okay. I want people to hear that, Chris. And, um, okay, we, I, I was going to have us talk about the equalizer, but since we started on Star Trek, let's talk about, because people don't understand, they see the finished product. Can you mm-hmm. give them an idea of what it would be like to bring an episode of Star Trek to screen from the story you write? Yeah. So, like, Star Trek is a little different than the equalizer because the story is, is told over 10 episodes as opposed to one. Correct. But the... But the the process is essentially the same. Okay. The the head writer, producer, executive producer, he's known as a showrunner. He has a vision for the season or for the episode, and for in terms of the equalizer. But for Star Trek, he had a vision for the season, and he asked the other six writers, "Can you guys flesh out the vision? I've got like an idea." But just but, but give me the eye, but, 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 but fill out as much as, uh, flesh out as much as possible. And then I will, you know, pick and choose what I like okay. or what the main story arc is. And then once the main story arc is figured out, we, and, and, then we just, and then we divided it up into basically 10 parts, then we sat down and the seven of us would figure out the story for every episode gotcha you figure out you figure out the outline there's like a whiteboard and you just you know you break it up into a teaser which is the first like two to three minutes of, a, of any television show mm-hmm. and then there's four acts and then we just had to sit there and do what we would call the story math to figure out what was going to happen in it like like in that episode what like what points were key for this thematic in this episode what points do we have to breadcrumb that would like lead you to the next episode and, and, and start putting these breadcrumbs down for what the larger story was, but you got to tell that, but you, but you got to tell a story that's contained in that, in that single episode. Right. And it's got to, and it's got to end in a way to bring you to the next episode. Cause if you don't end it all with people just watching, you go, eh, I'm not interested. So then once that was approved or, or once it was, it wasn't approved, it was settled on, um, the showrunner he just uh, he just assigned writers to write it, and then they would have to just like leave the the writers' room. We all convene in the writers' room, conference room with the whiteboards. We had like eight or nine whiteboards in there, and they would leave and they would write the episode, and then they would send it to the rest of the room, the rest of the writers to look at, mm-hmm. to give to give feedback on. And then, you know, and then they would do another pass. Then they would send it to the studio and the production company. They would have a notes call uh, about what wasn't clear, what did they want to see more of. The, uh, you know, those people, the Paramount is what it was, Paramount Plus, they had their own agenda about things that, the, you know, that they wanted to see. Mm-hmm. And they uh, suggest that to you. And then the script is ready. It's, it's ready for production. They hire a director. We already had the cast. You know, we started building um, sets. We had some sets, but they started building sets 
based upon what was written in the script. You know, it was all done on the sound. We had, we had four sound stages that were dedicated to us, and we uh, it's it huge, huge spins, huge spins. And but it, it looked amazing. I, the first time we went onto the bridge, the main starship mm-hmm. of that third, it was sort of jaw dropping for me. Uh-huh. How many? How many times have I watched like Star Trek or Star Wars as a movie on the home or the theater? Blah, blah, blah. That's set foot on that bridge. And it's interesting because the way they do it now, all those little like the screens and stuff that they touch and stuff like that, mm-hmm. that's all happening in real time. Like they, it's programmed. So when they're rehearsing, if the actors and the director are going to do, you know, he's doing all that rehearsal just like in a play. There's someone off camera who's, who's designing someone. Okay, so she's going to touch the screen, so the screen the display's going to uh, change to this. Ooh. And it's all yeah, you know, yeah. You know, it's, it's all you know, and you just sit and you're sitting there going, "That's pretty crazy." Like you, <laughs> it, it, if you, they could go in and tweak stuff depending on where things are. Like later when they're doing the editing, mm-hmm. but that's what we would do it, and they would we would in those episodes were. The, sh- the episodes on Star Trek were shot in two episode blocks, so so we wouldn't start shooting until we had two scripts ready. Okay, and then um, and then a single director would shoot both those episodes. You know that block he had around um, uh, about twenty five days to shoot. You know to shoot to shoot those two episodes. Mm-hmm. The scripts are forty pages apiece. Um, and you just, you know, and the, the line producers and the first assistant directors, they all kind of figure out the scheduling in terms of like, who's going to be where, what set we're going to shoot on like this day or, or this half a day. And then we're going to move to this part of the ship or this outside or to another set for the second half of the day. And this, and then they just kind of move it around like a, like a big army because you have around like 70 people are working on the soundstage like at a given time to make it all work. You know, there's three cameras going, there's there's cranes, there's the makeup people, costume people, extras, and you just watch this huge machine going and you kind of sit there because cause my showrunner boss was very, very generous and he said, if you ever want to go down and watch it happen, go watch it happen. Just as long as it doesn't take you take you uh, it doesn't take you out of the writer's room when we need you. So when other writers were writing or when they were doing notes or when they were doing casting or when they were, um, you know, they were trying to, they were trying to wait for answers about cast or just, or just, there's a, there's a myriad of questions that you don't know where you, the, the writers can't continue until they get some answers. Um, that's why I'm going to go down and watch the magic happen. And, you, you know, and as, as many times as you see it, it's still, kind of fascinating because the actors bring something to it that you don't that you as the writer can't um, yeah I, I hear I hear oh my goodness uh, I'm listening to you and uh, I'll give you an idea of the, the lens I'm listening through I went to see Lion King last week mm-hmm. on the stage mm-hmm. okay now mm-hmm. what you just said and what happens how they do that and what the result is, it's the word I have is amazing. But what I hope people heard as you gave us the scenario is it's about collaboration. Completely. 
It is all collaboration. And the one thing I want us to hear from you is where did you get the skill set? I mean, how did you learn how to do what you do so well? And, oh, by the way, I've read Thin Ice. So um, I was impressed, by the way. That's 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 Chris's podcast. Uh, if we have time, we'll talk about that. But um, yeah. how did you, your journey, okay? I know that people noticed you for different reasons in junior high and high school, but you didn't wind up on Star Trek. I know it was people supporting you, but where's your skill set? How did you get that? What is it? My skill set is, I know, I, I understand how stories, film stories, television stories work. I developed that skill set, and it's always something that people, it's a, something that I developed that people remark on is, when I was in uh, junior high, um, there was a television channel called American Movie Classics. It yes, I love it. <laughs> and before TCM and before AMC mm-hmm. was was it eventually became AMC, but I remember watching a black and white movie called Mr. Lucky. Yes, star uh, Cary Grant. Yes, and this happened to be on, and there was and, and I knew who Cary Grant was because he was kind of spoofed a little bit in like some Warner Brothers cartoons, mm-hmm. and. And my mom's younger brother used to talk about him a lot as kind of one of his his role models for, like, being suave. So I sat down and watched this movie one night and was captivated Mm -hmm. and became a, a, like, I became a voracious devourer of classic American movies. Yes. But what they did on that channel was every once in a while they would show foreign films. And I was even more attracted to foreign films because foreign films have a storytelling tradition that's not ours. So when you watch when you watch a foreign film, you don't know what's really going to happen. Mm-hmm. It feels foreign because they tell stories differently, mm-hmm. and the no one you don't know. And that made me say, "There's more ways to tell a story, and it can still be satisfying." This is fascinating, mm-hmm. and I just. I just watched, I mean, I don't know how many movies I've watched. There's very few people that I've met in my time in in Hollywood who have seen as many movies as I have. And I don't say that like like bragging. I just meet people and talk to people and they'll just talk and I just throw out movies and they'll look at at me and they go, you've seen everything, haven't you? I go, no, I've just, I've seen a lot, Mm -hmm. but I love it. Yeah. Love it. Then eventually when I, Graduated from the University of Michigan with a finance degree. <laughs> I, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Yes. See, that slipped by in our pre-talk. Okay. Uh, all right. Go ahead. Dreams can come true. Right. So, right. so I, I came out here. Like My father had helped. He had been involved in something to help put the, some financing for a movie. So I knew uh, like there was an inside peek to the movies. You know, mm-hmm. my father said to me, but I was very young, and I always took to heart that I think that a lot of people of color would benefit from this advice, which is this is what he said. He said, if you see somebody doing something that you want to do, you can do it. 
Doesn't matter if there's no one black doing it. Doesn't matter if there's no one Asian doing it. Doesn't matter if there's nobody Hispanic doing it. If somebody is doing it, that means that it can be done by you. I love it. If you see someone doing something you want to do, you can do it, right? Right. Because somebody has to be the first of anything, right? But the the thing is, I hear from a lot of people, a lot of, like, I don't know, I could be a writer. I don't know anyone who's a writer. I hear just a lot from black people. I didn't know about writing television. I, you know, I don't know anything about movies. Blah, blah, blah. Now, granted, there have been black people who've been making movies since the silent era. If you happen to just look a little beyond the curtain. Yes, you know, yes, yes, I agree. Go through two or three doors, you'll see there's black people who've been doing it since the, the 1890s. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, not that well known, but but so so if you need that role model or that 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 vision, it's there if you look. But if you don't, but my thing, my thing my, that my dad told me was, you don't need a role model. If someone is doing it, then it can be done. I love it. You know, it, it, you know, if, if if you're black and, and you want to be an astronaut because there you saw Buzz Aldrin get on the moon, it might take you a little longer to be. You know, I mean, there was that first black action on the early 80s, mm-hmm. but it happened. Eventually it happened because that guy probably saw Buzz Aldrin or maybe he saw the guy, uh, the, the Russian guy, um, Yuri Gagarin, and was like, someone's getting in the moon. Someone's getting into space. I want to get into space. Yeah. I, and and so, so that's the, the thing that, that drives me a lot. And so then when I, like I said, when I graduated in Michigan, I'd seen this movie. I'd seen Orson Welles as a fellow. It had been a lost movie, and it came back out. And someone had found a, a print of, mm-hmm. in some garage somewhere up in, in New Jersey, and they were releasing it in this roadshow thing, which they don't do anymore, where just, there's only four or five prints of it, and they would send it out, you know, like scattered around and play a week here, and then to another town, blah, blah, um, you know. But I saw this movie, and I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> I want to do that. So this finance degree is now not really going to help me that much until I get some money. But that's what I wanted to do. And so when I came out to Los Angeles, my brother and I came out to Los Angeles, I just, and I happened to be able to go to USC because they let you go into the library. Even if you were, even if you didn't go there, you could go to the library. Mm-hmm. Now, is that you couldn't check out materials, but you can look at it there. And because it was all film materials, they had VCRs and Laserdisc players and DVD players, this huge library of stuff, and they had a, and they had a repository of scripts. Oh, and I like oh now I can read stuff that a movie that I liked. Mm-hmm. Do they have this? They didn't have it there. They have it at the Writers Guild Library again, which you can go to if you're not a member. You just can't check anything out. Just go in there. So I was like, here's another here's another resource for me. And I would just read the scripts. I would just read all the time. I loved, like, just reading in general. Um, but I was like, there's a, and I remember I got a hold of a syllabus. There was a, a syllabus for the film production major at USC. Oh. I got a hold of one, mm-hmm. and I was like, here's the movies they're watching, here's the scripts that they're they're reading or that they, sh- they could read. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to syllabus and that 
is how I taught myself. Now, at the same time, I knew I could make movies. When I first came out of my brother, we actually did direct a bunch of short films. I knew I could do that because when I was like, I think 15 or 14, my grandfather gave me a 35 millimeter like stills camera. Ooh. And I like, and, and I learned how to make that work. I was so fascinated in like photography. And I was like, how does this light box work? How does this device work? How does it like, like how do I master this? Because then I can create a single image at, at any time. I remember when I went to, when I went to Vienna, when I was like 16, and I brought this camera and I was shooting slides. And I was like, and I was trying to, and I was still teaching myself how to do it. So I would shoot stuff and not necessarily know if I was getting the best image mm-hmm. or was it all going to but I was teaching myself. It was all trial and error, all trial and error. But I would read about how to do it and think about stuff. So I wasn't like so wildly off. I just taught myself. I was like, I can do this. There's material, there's, op- there's information out here. I don't have someone, you know, who's instructing me, but I can learn. Um, that was one of the things that people had always told me when I was, People didn't tell me this, but something that like I figured out about myself. Well, you know I what you described. You have just given the perfect definition to passion. Yeah. You, you, oh, for sure. Yeah. And you know, I used oh. that in the beginning, but you are now telling a story, your your passion story. And I hope people are hearing this because yourself you were, you are self driven. And yeah. I just, uh, I didn't realize that we had so much in common because I'm a black and white, old, old movie fanatic. But um, Yeah, I love it. I, I, I love it so much. So, uh, but, but yeah, but so I had this, this kind of a, a knowledge base skill set of how, like how film photography, how photography works. Yeah. And, and it's a very easy skill set to translate to how motion picture photography works. And then that allowed me to, when we were making short films, to get images, to get compositions that were stronger than someone of my age who, who hadn't been to film school, who hadn't been to art school, because I had done it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, remember, I remember my brother and I had a movie we made a short film called The Chop Shop. It was a story of a. It was a story set inside of a, a black barber shop of the guy telling a story, mm. and it was it was in color, and the story then was told in black and white. And that movie went to the Sundance Film Festival. It was like we shot it on digital digital videotape, and we went to the Sundance Film Festival at a time when they weren't accepting digital films yet it was very early in the, it was the early, 2003 or something like 2002 mm-hmm. and i never will forget uh, and something about them uh, we're there in the screening hall there's about eight films playing and my brother like he you know he he elbows me in when our movie's playing and robert redford is there and he's laughing <laughs> at our movie okay because it's a movie about this comedy. And I was like, Robert Redford, the head of the, the founder of the festival, the Sundance <laughs> Kid, he's here and he's chuckling at our movie. Mm-hmm. This is, this is going to be, you know, like, I, 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 I didn't know what was going to happen after that, mm-hmm. but I knew he did something right at that point. I, got, then, I, have to, I have to ask you something, and this is very important, Chris. You help me with this. Okay. I am so fascinated with 
what we have talked about, and we have not scratched the surface about what you and I said we might talk about. And yeah. in two minutes, I'm going to need you to read your, your letter. So here's what I'd like to do. Can you imagine us doing a second show together? <laughs> because yeah. uh, I'm, I'm just sitting here. I've been taking all kinds of notes. And I, I, want, you, I want you to talk about in that show, I want you to really talk about the next generation, okay, how they might prepare, okay. the kinds of things they might have a hard time with. I want you to, to dream with them. We haven't talked about the strike. We haven't talked about AI. Do you understand? We didn't, yes. we didn't do what we said we were going to do, but what we did is so much better, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, look. I can say two quick two minutes. I can say a few quick things about the strike, and we can talk um, more on another. Yeah, we definitely do a, a second one. Okay, uh, this the strike. Okay, the strike is, was necessary. The people in Silicon Valley they inflicted a type of um, new technology for how film and television is distributed. Um, there wasn't a problem with the way it was distributed before. Someone just had an idea that, that they thought it could be better or not better, but, but less friction between the viewer and the, 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 the filmmaker. And in doing so, they actually broke the industry. And so, therefore, the, the writers and actors are on strike because we are finally had to say, I mean, there was, there was a lot of talk in 2020 when we were trying to negotiate the contract then, but it happened during the pandemic. Right, right. And, the, and people could not strike then. Uh, there's just too much uncertainty. But now they're like, we have to strike now. We're not getting enough money. We are generating billions of dollars for these companies, and they are reducing our wages every year when their profits go up. And so that is the main reason why that we're striking. It was the main reason. The sec- a, a, a big secondary reason is is AI, is artificial intelligence. Yes, yes. The, the, yes, the the the. the the main thing is is that we, the Writers Guild, had asked for there to be some sort of like just some guardrails on how artificial intelligence um, could be used to help with writing, yeah. could be used with storytelling. And, you know, there was the whole concept that people were saying that it could be used as a research tool. We could come up with an idea mm-hmm. and we could present Page summary and the and part of the writer's guild was like that's fine but that can't be considered original material that can't be considered ip because they separate how you get paid who owns something that's considered ip right. or original material or, or research material and the studios were like we're not going to negotiate on that at all we're not going to negotiate on anything about ai at all well and when you come back we're going to do a, a deep dive and an update uh because yeah. What I'm listening to is the impact on the various layers of the industry, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm listening to people that can't pay their health insurance, all right? Yeah. And then we talk about Oppenheimer and Barbie and how much money. Mm -hmm. You know know what I'm saying? I get it. I really do. And I just, you know, I had kind of an inkling that this would be a terrific show, but now I've exceeded expectations and you will be back and you've got to read your letter. Okay. okay, I can read the letter now. Okay, dear. Thank you. Yes, this is my letter to my younger self. Chris, your childhood trauma is going to define you, but don't let it limit you. 
It won't be easy, but each time you identify and then shake off one of those self-limiting beliefs, you will take one step closer to the ideal version of you. That's the path that you want to be on. It'll never end and it'll be a bumpy road, but you have the means to make the journey. A journey where if you bring your passion and you learn from your experiences and you deploy your unique way of thinking, you will find joy where you least expect it. Mm. Take joy, whatever shape, size, or form it comes in, it will nourish you. You first need to embrace your greatest gifts. You'll wonder what those are, and for too long you will shy away from the one that the one primary gift people recognize when encountering you. It makes you different. It makes you stand out. But that's the point in life. You will suffer longer than necessary whenever you try to, to downplay it. And whatever you do, and, and whatever you do, you will deny a core element of who you are. Standing out at first will appear as though you were standing apart. They're not quite the same thing. Uh, what you won't know most of the time is that there are more outsiders who can then, uh, and you can imagine who will welcome you into the fold. Look a little further, open the next door, talk more. Your voice is your superpower. Written and spoken. This is another one of your gifts that, that you don't embrace. It's that childhood trauma coming back to haunt you. Brush it back as soon as you can. Otherwise, time will go by, and time is a zero-sum game. It's the only thing you can't get back. Money, possessions, jobs, friends, lovers, trips, family, they will come and go. The time only goes. You will... <laughs> Now, you will yearn to be an individual. Embrace this with all your heart. Take actions that will satisfy your soul. This will allow you to step into the arena, survive, and thrive. Teddy Roosevelt's quote about the man in the arena is going to be one of your beacons. Take this to heart. It will give you courage to face any danger. Now, a woman will come into your life during one of your low points. She's going to believe in you like no one else before or since. And she's gonna love you, and and you're not gonna recognize it. So you're not gonna treat her right, and you're not gonna give her the few things she asks for. So you're gonna lose her, and it's gonna hurt for a long time, because her love and her desire for your genuine for, for your genuine happiness is unfamiliar. But um and but on the other side of that pain is the best years of your life, and losing her will force will force you to confront the demons that choke you at night. And then losing her will force you to treat every other woman who enters your life with more compassion and with more clarity. I can't say if you reconnect with this woman, but you might not need to. Be thankful she came into your life and changed this trajectory. In the wake of her absence, you will strive to become a better man, a man who is more giving, a man who respects his life more, a man who respects everyone whose life touches you and whose life you touch. Now, my final thoughts are, spend more time with friends. Spend more time bringing joy into other people's worlds. It's an investment that pays compound interest and dividends. (laughs) Your future will continue to be bright as long as you believe in yourself and believe in your gifts. A warm hug from the future. Chris, oh my goodness. Okay, what words come to mind? First of all, I want I want to repeat what your daddy said to you. I want other people to hear it again. If you see someone doing what you want to do, you can do it. And then yeah. one from Chris, Christopher. 
of all the things that happen in our lives, the things that come and go, time only goes. Christopher, we're going to stay on for a minute after the show. We gotta, we had, we have work to do. We have only begun. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, let me let me get this show closed out with our spiritual okay. doggy bag that I do. And it's, yeah. you know, some of us have those days where we go, I'm tired of being tired. Or is this all there is? Yeah. And and I want you to know, if by chance no one has told you today they love you, I will be honored to say the first today, I love you. I love you because you are and have been so willing to grow. And my, how you have grown. You've grown from struggling to searching from trying to do something to learning how to do it. You've grown from fear to having faith, to demonstrating your courage. You've grown in many ways, consistently demonstrating your willingness and your courage to take the next step, the step toward the profound and the divine wisdom buried within yourself, the step toward knowing more about yourself. That's exactly why I love you. You are profoundly divine. Now, that's, that's a message from love, also known as God. Please, please treat yourself like someone you love. You're stronger than you feel, smarter than you think, more beautiful than you know, and more love than you can ever imagine. I love you. Until next time, this is Tyra G. My storyteller today, who will be back, was Mr. Christopher Derrick. What a joy, Chris. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. Until next time, this is Tyra G.